0: Mercy Road. Oh, you better be nice to me today. This is what we call outside my comfort zone. Got to get my props out here real quick. It is great to be with you. Um, Let me talk about Jesus today a little bit. Um, My name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here and one of the founding members of Mercy Road Church. We uh, we started in Josh's house a long time ago. It wasn't quite as many people. His house wasn't that big, uh, but it has been an awesome journey watching God grow this church and to see um, just life change after life change happen. In fact, we have this 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 like mission statement. We we believe that no one is too far from God to experience life change through Jesus. That's my story. That's Josh's story. It's a lot of our stories, and we like to say that we're a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. And so. It's going to get real today, and I hope you're okay with me being real. That's kind of the only way I do this. I'm not a gift enough preacher to do it any other way. So we are in the sermon series on the book of Judges, which is not exactly the most chipper part of the Bible. And now we're at the end of it, which is like, like probably my least favorite part of the whole Bible. Oh, wow, and to add effect, um, dramatic effect. <laughs> and so this is the least chipper part of Judges is what we'll be going through. And most pastors would never let their worship leader preach on a a, a sermon series like this. But Josh is a man of great faith. So here we are today. But I'm so glad you guys are with us. Um, I also want to say this. These trading cards are so fun. Can we thank Megan Mellinger, our creative team, for coming up with... That is fancy. Man. And, And like I actually autographed... One I had a kid come up last week, and it was like me with my eyes gouged out or something. He's like, can you write your name right there? That was pretty cool. So that's fun. Love, Megan. And these have been a hit with the kids. So we had a, some kids were pretty upset one week when they didn't get a pack. So be sure to share those with children, please. Um, where we are now is, oh, I, my last little disclaimer. If you are church shopping, give it one more week. Decide next week. Okay. <laughs> Just, now we're good. Now we're good. Okay. So last week, we uh, read about the death of, of Samson. And so I'm here to tell you, like, we're kind of out of heroes and out of hope when it comes to the book of Judges. Like, we don't get more heroes rising up. We kind of see how bad it's going to get now as we see uh, the nation of Israel without any spiritual leader and kind of without God. And so it, it's, it's a little bit like a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's like all darkness, no hope. So get ready for that. So thanks again for the softball pitch, Josh. Um, but it's important that we don't pass sections like this over in the Bible, There is so much wisdom and warning in here, and and I really resonate with the message we're going going through today. Um, And so I want to point out that Judges 17 through 21 demonstrates uh, something I'm going to refer to as Christian idolatry. And uh, it'll make more sense as we go, but that's what we're going to name the sermon. We'll come back to that a lot. And um, I also want you to keep in mind that we're talking about God's people. So these are the people that he rescued from Egypt. And then he he entered into a covenant relationship with them at Mount Sinai, like a marriage-level covenant. And, and and then after that he helped like he fought for them so that they could inherit the land that he promised their ancestor Jacob. And it's it's amazing. And he was faithful to them over and over and over, and they are unfaithful to him over and over and over. And so at this point, you know, we're kind of, we're past Moses and the wondering, we're now in the promised land. And we, we've had like, you know, Joshua and Caleb, and everybody, they did their big campaign and we've got the promised land. And so now we've been in this place where we just see time and time again, a generation come along that knows not the Lord or his ways, and they turn away against God and all of all of his commandments. And then God will raise up a judge after they've been oppressed by A neighboring country for a while to kind of teach them and rebuke them to get them to come back to God. That's the pattern we've been living here. But again, to remind you on my week, I don't even get a hero. So we're just going to deal with the consequence of God's people turning and doing everything their way. This is what it says. It says this a lot in this uh, part of Judges. Uh, See if I can find it here. Israel had no king and everyone chooses to do what's right in their own eyes. That's what we're going to be hearing a lot today. And so um, I want to ask you though, what happens when we reject God's leadership in our lives? Or maybe not like totally reject him, but just redefine or reshape him just a little bit. What happens when we decide to redefine right and wrong just a little bit? And when everyone chooses to do what's right in their own eyes, we're about to see what that looks like. You guys ready to get in the word of God today? All right. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, I'm so grateful for your word. And I'm grateful that your children did not evidently have a very good PR person and hide all the bad stuff. They left it in here because we need it. We need it so bad, God. We need to see what a world without you looks like. Future generations need to see the consequences of doing things our way and taking you out of the situation. So I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us. We give you the right to do that. We give you the right to make us feel a little uncomfortable and and care about seeing righteousness be a part of our daily life. We give you the right to lead us into what it might look like to step into the suffering of others and to demonstrate your kingdom in that way. We give you the right to lead us and to convict us. And we also, we we want to know where we're at with this, God. So I pray that you would also... Just convict us of where our hearts are and what might be between us and you that we don't even see right now. Would you do that for us through your word and through your presence in this room? Would you just guide our hearts and bring everything to the light? We love you and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Who wants to read some good news? Better go read the Gospels after this one. Okay. Judges 17, starting verse 1. There was a man on the hillside of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The 1100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it into my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed my son by the Lord. He restored the 1100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord uh, from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver, gave it to a silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Here we go, that famous verse we're gonna hear a lot today. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So to recap, Samson is gone. We've got another generation that's come along that knows not the Lord or his ways. And we've got this random guy, Micah. There's not much backstory to this. All we know is that he stole his mom's silver and she utters a curse on whoever stole her silver. He evidently believes in God enough to be worried about the curse. He takes it back, says, it was me. Please take back the curse. She does one better. She says, I'm gonna bless you. And I'm gonna like... I'm going to dedicate some of this silver to the Lord because, you know, he brought my silver back and all this. So basically she's saying, I'm going to thank God by making a carved image of God. Now let's cut her a little slack. It's not like we have a ton of great teachers and, you know, biblical scholars around back then to help her know the ways we didn't have a lot of um, priests or prophets who were really showing people God's ways at this point. This is kind of the dark times. And so maybe she's doing the best she can, but I just want to point that out again. She's not making an image of like Baal. She's trying to make an image of Jehovah. And so Micah sets up a little shrine for the thing. And and it says here at the end, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the first point we're going to look at today is Christian idolatry redefines God rather than submits to him. Christian idolatry redefines God rather than submits to him. You might be thinking, well, this isn't that bad. She's like made a little statue of the Lord, you know. But what she did wasn't direct violation of the second, uh, second commandment. And so I want to look at those two commandments here first. Um, we, don't, we don't get Exodus out very often and just look through the Ten Commandments. But we're going to start with the first two here today. This is what... of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So we don't really talk about idolatry much in America's church. You know, I just noticed that like, not like real, like, varsity idolatry, like worshiping other gods. It's just not something that's real common around here. And so um, I don't know how many of you know my story, but I, I went to this great Christian school called Indiana University, which was ranked number one party school in the nation when I was a freshman. And, and that's where I found God, was in a fraternity at Indiana University of all places. That's where I really uh, gave my life to Christ and, and started my first Bible study and, and felt a call to ministry even. After IU, I went to India and spent a year there um, and, and it changed my life It was the first time I really saw poverty and unreached people groups and, and, and had a lot of Hindu friends for the first time. I was like the only white guy in this homogenous, you know, society and got lots of stares and all the things. And so it was an amazing year, changed my life. And, and I'll never forget like, um, I don't want to get too far ahead here, but like I'll never forget like hanging out with one of my Hindu friends and and understanding like how his religion worked and we're going to talk about this in just a minute when I show you uh, one of the guys that that he served but um after India, I came back, I married my lovely wife, Jillian. And for the next decade, we did uh, music and ministry, cross-cultural musicianary work under the leadership of GTM, Global Training Ministries. And we saw a lot of idolatry in places like India, Nepal, and Thailand. And so I want to talk about it because this is a sin that we see hurt God's heart and stir up his jealousy and anger more than anything else in the Bible. So we need to talk about it. And so we would partner with missions agencies and recovery organizations overseas um, about three times each year, and we saw a lot of this stuff. And so what I want to look at, though, here is is like first commandment. We're all going to agree that this is first commandment, bad idolatry. Here we go. Example number one. We've got a nice illustration of the golden calf. These are God's people. He... (laughs) Moses is literally up on Mount Sinai. God just entered into like a marriage covenant with these people. And they're basically on the honeymoon. They've already made themselves an idol and are committing idolatry. And so that's, that's our exhibit A. Exhibit B is, this is the ancient God Ra of Egypt. So this is a real idol. I wanted you to see the real thing too, because it, it does something to me. It kind of evokes like a little bit of a righteous anger and stuff. You know, this is the ancient God Ra. And then the next one, is ganesh and this is modern day so this is what i was used to seeing in india and and ganesh is um, ganesh is an interesting one see ganesh is the god who's supposed to be worshiped first among the other ones not like highest but first and and my friend who explained this to me said well basically shiva his dad was out hunting one time and his mother lakshmi was in this cave she had just given birth to ganesh and evidently Uh, Shiva's out hunting a long time because by the time he comes back to the cave, Ganesh's son is at at the front uh, protecting the entrance of the cave uh, because his mother's bathing. And so Shiva says, let me into that cave. That's where my wife is. And Ganesh is like, no, my mother's bathing and they don't connect the dots that it's father's son. And so Shiva cuts off his head and then he finds out that it's his son. He sews the head of an elephant on and Ganesh is so embarrassed. He says, no one, everyone's going to laugh at me. And, And Shiva basically says, no, to make sure that you're honored, you'll be worshiped first among all the gods. So that's just a real quick snippet on Ganesh. So what that looks like though in Hindu culture would be, if you want to buy a new car, you buy it on a Wednesday because that's Ganesh's auspicious day. And so you go to the Ganesh temple after you go to the dealership and you make sure to get the Ganesh little emblem on the front at the temple because it's Wednesday, his auspicious day. And that way you're, you're doing it right. and and nothing terrible will happen to your car. That's pretty confusing. That's pretty confusing. Idolatry is tricky because when you have these carved gods that you kind of can control, manipulate if you do it right, it gets pretty tricky. We're going to look at that a little bit as well. But I I want to go back to what Micah's mom did. He didn't go make, she didn't go make an idol of Ganesh or or Baal. She made an idol of, of Jehovah, or at least tried to best she could. And so that's what I want to talk about a little bit is this, this kind of idolatry where, where we, we kind of make like our version of God. And the reason the second commandment is so important to God is because no image, no carved image that you or I would ever make could possibly capture the fullness of God's glory. Inevitably, your version of God is going to highlight the things that most appeal to you. And it's going to probably conceal and downplay the parts that you don't like. And so, you know, let's play this out. Inevitably, you're going to magnify his strength, maybe, but uh, obscure his compassion. You might celebrate his grace while ignoring his purity and justice. When you end up with this, it's a distortion of God. It's not God as he is. It's actually God as you want him to be. It's a form of idolatry and a rejection of who God really is. So it's, it's not as much of a gray area. And I thought that was really fascinating when I was studying this, this message for this week is, boy, that is a gray area that I feel like is still prevalent in our culture today. And it's growing. It's even bigger than it used to be. Um, and we get, that little, we get that little verse again, because there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So just as you redefine God, you also redefine right and wrong according to your preferences. And I think this is an important warning for us today And it's, it's not that Christians are like rejecting Jesus. We believe in Jesus. It's just that like, I believe in the Jesus who wouldn't do that. You know, well, God might've said that, but that was for like for, for back there. That's like, not for me. Like, it's almost like we're God's PR campaign or something like what he said in the Bible can't stand. And we end up forming and carving this version of God that is not exactly him. And so to play this out, let's say, I'll give you a metaphor Let's say Peter Jackson came to me and said, Eric, I want to make a biography of you. Sounds great. Probably be a great, like, you know, sequel to The Lord of the Rings or something. But like, let's say in this biography, he's, he's like, I, I go back and I watch it. And he's like, the actor is like 6'4", a vegetarian and like a really outspoken critic against the 80s sitcom ALF because you love cats and live alone in a van or something, you know? And, and I'd be like, okay, A, Peter Jackson, that's an awesome movie. But B who's it about? Because I love meat. I love Alf, and I'm 6'4". I'm not 6'5". And so <laughs> when we make our own version, but you know, Peter might be like, well, yeah, but this is more appealing to people because vegetarians are kind of really on the rise right now. It'll really help the sales. Or, yeah, but it's not me. I love meat. I love White Castle meat. It's bad. <laughs> I know. That's where usually people can't follow me. They're like, I like meat too. Nope, not going there with you, Eric. But this sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But we all do this. So let's bring up example A of Christian idolatry for today. I love this one. This is Buddy Jesus. I've got the t-shirt for crying out loud. Ryan, I'm going to have you read this t-shirt just because you have that you know, famous voice now. What is the tagline? He's happy. He's scrappy. He's the son of God. That's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of Jesus I want. You know, no matter what's going on in life, no matter what scripture I read and how bad I feel, he's pointing and winking at me. Let's look at the next one here. Some of you are a little more comfortable with six pound, eight ounce porcelain baby Jesus. He's a little more tender. He's the lamb, not the lion. We've got the next one. This is literally called posh Jesus. You can cuddle with posh Jesus. And these next three, these are for me because I didn't know they existed and I think they're hilarious. Here we go. That's basketball, Jesus in sandals. Um, We've got soccer Jesus for the soccer moms. And there's my favorite right there. Let's leave it up there for just a minute. Middle Eastern garb, ice skates, hockey Jesus. Hockey Jesus. I just can't get over it. So um, anyway, that that last part was kind of just for me. We better take that off screen before Josh logs on and starts watching this. Um, But I don't know about you, but like, I'm just going to be real with you guys. I, I committed Christian idolatry for a lot of my early Christian walk, like all throughout high school. I gave my life to Jesus at a youth camp for high school and, and I tried to follow him then. And then in early college, I had this form of Jesus that I followed. Where like, like, well, for example, one of the things that me and my, my girlfriend, we were both in a Bible study together. We decided that, you know, sex outside of marriage, that's not a big deal for us because we're probably gonna get married one day. That's how we reason that away. And opening that one door of sex outside of marriage, ended up having more consequences in my young adult life than almost any other choice I made. It led to more addiction and confusion and depression as I tried to find my acceptance and my worth and my purpose through relationship after relationship. And it was one of the first doors that I closed when I surrendered my life to who Jesus really is in college. Think about that. What are the things that you're just like, yeah, but Jesus, you don't really care about that anymore. And we're not here to just judge and say, oh man, you you blew it, no coming back. No, I mean, that's why this is called Mercy Road. It is for people like, like me and my friends who are all still walking this out because I don't know about you, but it's pretty easy to come up with a new version of Jesus almost every season right now. And as our world changes and our culture and the narrative changes, it gets pretty tough to hold on to the way Jesus really is. He's not real popular sometimes. And so we instead kind of create this version of our Jesus. And um, Jillian and I made the decision when we met, because I didn't date for three years after that. That's one of the ways I closed that door to figure out who I was. And when I met my wife, that was the first person I dated since then. And um, she and I both had similar backgrounds. And that was a broken area. That was something that we had done wrong in our previous life before Christ. So we did everything we could to save ourselves from marriage. And it was hard. We did like what, you know, some of those Christians at Taylor do. They just get married like right out of college, you know. I can't wait another day. You know, we, we shortened our engagement, whatever we had to do, but we wanted to honor God with that because we were committed and submitted to Jesus first, even ahead of each other. So let's, let's continue this uh, story here. This is picking up from verse seven. Now there was a young man in Bethlehem, uh, of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem and Judah, to sojourn to where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver each year and a suit of clothes and your living." And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite and the young man to become his priest. And he was in the house of Micah. And I want you to pay attention to this last verse. Then Micah said, now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So his little God that he just carved out, he now has a Levite who's from like the priestly caste of Israel, as a priest, he's now doing it right. Now God owes him. Think about that. I've got God on the hook, basically. So the next part that Christian idolatry does is it uses God rather than worships him. Christian idolatry uses God rather than worships him. Micah assumes two things here. One is that God exists to serve him. And two, that if he does the right things, God is obligated to bless him. It's a great substitute for true faith, um, but what faith, I'm sorry, this religiosity that we're talking about, this Christian idolatry is a complete substitute for true faith. That God exists for you, that if you do what, what, what you're supposed to do, that he owes you. But by contrast, true faith says this, God, I exist for you, and you don't owe me anything. I actually owe you. Religion asks questions like, how can I get God to help me in my business? And then when, he, when it doesn't happen, religion says, God, I did the things you said you wanted. I gave money here. I did this. I did that. I behaved. What happened? Why didn't you deliver? But true faith would say, God, do what you want with my skill, with my life. Everything I have is yours. How can I glorify you through this difficult season? Totally different. Christian idolatry seeks to control or manipulate God. True faith Surrenders to God. This is huge. This is anybody resonating with this at all? Because I mean, my version of Jesus, I had him dialed in. And I can't even tell you the kind of fear and anxiety I had because if I didn't do it right, or why didn't he do this when he was supposed to? And I wore the lucky pair of socks before my chemistry exam, and why isn't he delivering? What kind of God are you seeking? Another way to say this is religion seeks access to God to get him to do what you want, whereas true faith gives God access to your heart so that he can tell you what he wants. That's big, isn't it? In the next chapter, um, we see another group of Israelites. I'm not going to read this for time's sake, but we see another group of Israelites come along and and they stay with Micah. They meet his priest. They convince him to come along with them and and they steal the gods. So this this Levite who was staying with Micah They take off with the gods, and Micah pursues this big group of Israelites, even though he's just one guy, and he's like, you got to give me my gods back. You can't take them. And they're like, well, good luck stopping us, but why is it such a big deal to you? This is what Micah says, verse 24, if you take my gods that I made, what have I left? Man, if you take my gods from me, what have I left? Um, when you shrink God down to a size that you can control, you always live in fear of losing him. You always live in fear of losing him. I mean, you think about my Hindu friend in in India who made sure to buy his car on a Wednesday and to get it all just right. Another thing is that he said his guru said to build a a wall on the west side because it was letting all this dark energy in, spent all this money on this wall, paid the guru tons of money. I'm not saying anything against, if you are a Hindu and you're watching this, A, thank you for watching this, but... This message is for those who are trying to be faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God we just sang about this is a jealous God that marries his people, that is so devoted to them that he expects that kind of devotion, that kind of pure worship and devotion from his people. And so, if that's not your God, I'm not talking to you, but that's the kind of God we serve and what he wants from us. When you try to control God, you live with anxiety. When you surrender to God, you can live in peace. I'll never forget when I finally surrendered my life to Jesus, the Bible was different, guys. There were these parts of the Bible that I would literally squirm, and be like, I, I'm not even going to read it. It makes me feel awful. There's no way God will accept me if this is true. So I just didn't read it or I just passed over it or whatever. argued it away. But when I surrendered to him and I found a group of Christians that had also surrendered to him, I would read those and I would say, man, it's going to cause some change. God, will you help me change to be like what this says? The next few chapters, I mean, this is just, this just gets worse, guys. This story is so bad. I'm going to paraphrase it for time's sake and because I'm literally not going to read some of these verses in front of your kids. So we're going to paraphrase this, but the last part of Judges, if you want to go read it, got your curiosity go and go ahead and read it, but it's bad. Basically what happens is another Levite who has nothing to do with the previous story and that Levite, this other Levite bought a concubine you know, paid for her fair and square. And she wasn't faithful to him. She runs home to be with her family. He gets on his donkey and goes and takes her back on his way back to his house with his concubine on the donkey. He stops in this town in the tribe of Benjamin. And basically you don't just go to a hotel and check in. If you come to a town and you need to stay somewhere, you hang out in the city circle until someone invites you. Well, no one would invite him in. It's almost dark now. That should have told him something. This old man comes up and says, you don't want to be staying here at night. Trust me. You don't want to be on the streets here at night. Come stay with me. And this starts to sound a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah. What happens is in the middle of the night, this group of men come and they bang on the door and they demand this old man to give out his house guests so that they can do all kinds of things to him. And the old man and this Levite, who's supposed to be a holy man of the priestly caste, instead of going out and facing this, he sends his concubine out instead. And she is basically abused and tortured throughout the night by these men. And at the end of the night, she basically makes it back to the door of this house and dies. The next day, he wakes up, this Levite, puts her on his donkey. When he gets home, he cuts her into all these pieces and sends her to the different tribes of Israel. And they all come together and say, this is outrageous. Can't believe this. These are God's people, by the way. These aren't the Canaanites doing this. These are people from the tribe of Benjamin. So Israel masses this army and they show up at Benjamin's borders and they say, you better give us the wicked men that did this because this is wrong and the Benjamites won't do it. So this massive civil war breaks out, causing tens of thousands of lives to be lost meaninglessly. And by the end of it, the tribe of Benjamin has dwindled down so little. And in fact, like all the other tribes decided we won't let any of our daughters marry any of those guys. So they almost die off. The only way they're able to keep their tribe going at all is by stealing women during this like virgin dance ceremony that men weren't supposed to be at. That's the end of Judges. Now you want to know who comes to save God's people from all of this wickedness? Uh, this is the extra credit. I will give you this deck of cards right here and dancing with Jesus if you get this right. Who was the judge that came after Samson to finish up the book of Judges? Who was, he can't say Jesus, you can't say God, just taking that off the list. Who was it? Just say out, shout out the name. Samuel, that's actually a really good answer for different reasons, but not technically in Judges. I'm gonna show you, here we go. Trick question, there was no other judge. (laughs) Like I'm telling you, Josh gave me the worst part of the Bible. There's no hero coming, like there's no good news. Like after that horrible story I just told you, Judge Dredd does not come and save them. Samson doesn't come save them. Like Judges ends with this, that same verse you just heard over and over and over. That at this time, like Israel had no king. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It is cool that God does raise up Samuel soon, though, and we start to see a different kind of leadership step up, which is cool. And ironically, if you think about that first king that Samuel anoints is actually who? Saul. And remember Saul, when he was being chosen, he said, I'm from the smallest tribe. Why do you think the tribe's so small? Like one tribe tried to fight all the other 11 tribes in the book of Judges. And so it's just a rough ending, guys, to God's people. And it's the kind of part of the Bible, it's like, what do we do with this, God? But one of the biggest warnings that you will see when you read those last few chapters is this, when God is absent, the weak are abused. Inevitably, when God is absent, the weak are abused. Start defining morality in a way that benefits the strong. When you take God out of the equation, the strong inevitably begin to impress the weak. If there, if there is no God though, we don't really have anything to worry about. It, I mean, you shouldn't worry about anybody's pain but your own if, if God's not real. But if there is a God, then we should recognize that every single person is created in His image, worthy of respect, of dignity, of being loved. This is why we have to speak up for people of color against racism in American culture. This is why we have to speak out for the lives of the unborn. This is why we have to speak out for protecting women and their rights in our culture. Who are the weak among us today? I want to bring up a few slides. And just as we begin to wrap this up, I want to ask you to just open your heart to if God would put any of these people on your list as we just look at a few different people groups. Number one is the fatherless. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 18.4 million children, one in four, live without a biological step or adoptive father in the home. That's enough children to fill New York City twice or Los Angeles four times. Foster kids, I'm so grateful for Brandon and Natalie Marshall. They're so excited to have their first foster kids. They can't wait. And there are over 10,000 children here in Indiana in the foster care system. Homeless. In 2021, uh, they counted over 2,600 homeless children who are experiencing homelessness. Um, 83% were doubled up, 9% stayed in a hotel or motel, 5% in a shelter, eight students were listed as being in unsheltered situations. Prisoners. A recent study out of Minnesota showed that one of the primary predictors on whether someone goes back into crime when they're released from prison is whether or not they have relationships with healthy people on the outside. According to this article, 40% of prisoners have had no one come visit them a single time while they're in prison. Not family, not friends, not someone from church. And the last thing I want to just point out in, in this Part is substance abuse. This is for Indiana. In Indiana, the number of fatal drug overdoses hit record high for the second year in a row. An estimated uh, 2,755 Hoosiers died of drug overdoses. Now, to to help drive this home, I want you to understand that, like, my family was affected by this. We have have members of our church that are affected by this, and they're walking out their recovery. Some of them maybe haven't started yet. I hope that you do. But that's almost 3,000 families that are having funerals for their kid, or kids having funeral for mom or dad, for grandparents, for friends. And, and I had one of my recovery uh, coaches tell me one time, like you don't get a casserole and a card when you lose your kid to an overdose. You get judgmental stares and shame for that. So that's like almost 3,000 people mourning alone because people are just judging them. Well, you should have been a better parent. What does it look like to step into others' suffering? That's what I wanna look at as we close this out. I wanna play a little clip in the background. This is the summer of recovery. Um, our nonprofit was able to team up with the uh, governor's office, Next Level Recovery, and uh, India Recovery Network, and just help celebrate India's recovery community. Guys, they're, they're amazing stories. that Brooke Rowe was singing, Isaiah Cheatham helped film all this, and I, Isaac Smith helped film the drone footage. And I mean, just a lot of members of this church and some of the other Mercy Roads got involved. How can we step into their suffering? And so that's one of the things I want to ask you today. When God is absent, it's the weak who are oppressed, and if we don't step up and step in, it's going to keep happening. So, what does it look like for you this week to just even say, "God, I'm going to give you one week of stepping into someone else's suffering"? What would that look like? The final thing I want to end with is, I haven't actually admitted this to many people because it's weird. I don't really how to tell this story, but. I probably started when I was in elementary. I started to have this weird prayer that was like my little mantra that I pray for my family to be safe and for God to bless me, all this self-centered stuff probably. But I prayed it every single day almost until I was in my mid-20s because it had so much power over me. I literally thought that if I didn't pray that weird prayer, that like my family would die or something. Like fear. And I, I had barely ever told anybody in my life about that thing. It was my little... I mean, yeah, sure, good on you, you pray every day, but from a place of fear and superstition. And I told a mentor about it when I was in my mid-20s and she just did this, she, she put her hand out, she said, can I have that? Would you give me that? The next day I didn't pray that prayer, I just prayed like you're supposed to, with an open heart, surrendered to God. The following day I didn't, the following day I didn't, nothing happened to my family, God is in control. God decides the number of our days, we can surrender to him. We don't have to manipulate him. And I want to ask some of you today, like, is this your time to give me your Jesus that you have carved in your image and exchange him for the one that made you in his? Because I'm telling you, everything changes when you surrender him. We're made for it, guys. We're made for it. And our city, and our state, needs us to step into the darkness, to step into the suffering of others, because we need to show them what God's actually like. We're not the Levite hiding inside and sending out the weak to pay for our decisions. So I want us to do this today. Let's stand to our feet and let's do some work with the Lord here. And we're gonna do this beautiful thing called repent. This is a good thing where maybe you're going this way and you didn't even mean to. You didn't even mean to start making this version of God that, but you're ready today to say, God, I don't even really fully know you, but I wanna start that journey too. This is the year of the word. I wanna start reading your word and knowing what you're like. And I'm ready to just worship you, to serve you. And if I read your word and it looks like I got to change, I'm willing to change. That's what surrender looks like, guys, instead of having God serve us. And so I'm going to pray two different kinds of prayers here today. The first is you've never surrendered your life to Jesus ever. You maybe had your version of him that, you know, a parent told you about or a friend told you about, but you're hearing about the real one today. And he is in this for you. He is so committed to you. He is faithful to you when you're not faithful to him. He He knows why he puts you on this earth. He has a purpose and a plan for you to prosper you, not to harm you. Even on your worst days, you can count on him. You can be in his hands. And so I wanna give you a chance to pray that with me today. Jesus, I just give you the things in my life that I've been serving. I'm done living for myself. I surrender my life to you. I believe that you're the son of God. I ask you to forgive me for my sins, the things that I've done time and time again against you and other people. I ask you to forgive me. And I believe and receive your forgiveness because you proved your love and forgiveness on the cross. I believe that after three days, you rose from the grave to prove that you've defeated death, to prove that you have gone before me to prepare a place for me. And I receive your Holy Spirit You said it was better that you'd go to the Father so Holy Spirit would come and empower us to live like you. And I receive you, Holy Spirit, today. And I ask you to live through me, to love through me, to let me see the world like you do, to let me see myself like you do. I give you my life. And if you prayed that today with me the first time, I just want you to raise your hand and let's celebrate that. That was the first time you prayed that. And please put that on connect card because we got some work to do after this to make sure that we just get you rooted and established into the family of God. And now for those of us who've been following Jesus for a while, if this resonated with you like it did for me, I just wanna give you a chance today to lay down your idol, to lay down the God that you didn't mean to start twiddling and carving into your image and just surrender to the God who made you in his. And I just want us to do this. Just confess it to him. God, I confess that I have served a God that's not you. Would you forgive me, Lord? I surrender to you. I give you the right to lead my heart. I give you the right to call my shots and to show me how to live. I want to partner with what you're doing in this world. I want to build your kingdom instead of mine. Thank you for loving me so much. Thank you for your forgiveness. I receive it today in Jesus' name. Amen.